Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 162, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, just what can and can't a school enforce in the world of COVID-19? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, will a pandemic cause us to rethink the way we design and renovate our schools? The CEO of Education Design International gives us his take. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is August 9th, 2020, and I'm joined by my friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, I don't know if uh, you and I are on the same page, but I got a little fired up this week about what went down at North Paulding High School over in Georgia. Are, are you familiar with this, with the picture of the crowded hallway? Yes, yes, because I, I saw it and immediately got a little anxiety <laughs> because our teachers returned this week, and then inevitably the, t- the students will return, and you know, I'm in a large middle school. And and for me, um, when I saw it, and I saw that the you know this photo was sent out there, it's when I started getting fired up. Was when I heard that the the student or the students that took the photo may have been suspended. That was days ago. That was kind of the first thing she I heard. Was suspended, right? And she was given a five day suspension, which is um, really intense. To be to be honest, generally in the different districts I worked in, um, you know, a simple fight, little scuffle will get you three days. She posted a picture and got a five day suspension. Now, we have to understand that this school district had a social media policy. I have not read the policy, so I don't know the contents of it. But at the same time, this is public information and information people need to know. So why do you want to hide it? And why aren't you putting measures in place to help children social distance? Why are you putting everyone in your school community at risk? Yeah, there's so much. There's so many angles to look at this. And just in case if if somebody out there doesn't know what we're talking about, I'll, I'll try to quickly summarize that um, there was a picture in this big high school. I think they have 2,000 students in the high school. And it was yes. a, a hallway picture. It was, a, it was probably a bottleneck in, in the building. And the hallway was packed with students. That's every day. That's the norm. And yeah. right now, we're not living in the norm. And, and so you see this photo. And the kids don't have masks on because this school doesn't have a they they encourage you to wear masks there's no actual rule for wearing mask at this school right. and um so this 15 year old girl takes the photo and, and sends it out there and it and it looks bad it went viral i mean the entire country was like wait this is what it's going to look like mm-hmm. when my child goes back to school everyone kind of got nervous about it well i guess um as you said the school did have a policy and and that policy was that it they are prohibited from filming students or posting their images on social media without their consent so i guess that was the rule but, that was but broken. we're going to suspend a child for five days, a child who's been out of school since about the second week in March Mm -hmm. because she shared the truth. Exactly. It wasn't profane. It wasn't vulgar. um, It wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't inappropriate. It was a true picture of what she saw in the hallway. The problem is they received so much negative feedback and kickback. They felt Neg- they felt like it was an attack on them. And when really it's the truth, it's the it's the view of a 15 year old child. And she's probably wondering, 
if this happens all over the country, how are we ever going to get rid of this virus? Absolutely. You know, and she went viral to the point that I think she landed on Good Morning America. I, I w- I'm with you and, and your tone on this. I didn't know where you would be because I, I also want to be empathetic to people like yourself who who is an administrator. You have to yeah. control things to some degree. You have to kind of control the message. I mean, that is part yeah. of your job. So I didn't know if you would be more sympathetic to the principal or not. Well, here's the thing. The principal and I clearly have different views on how to open up for school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the first thing. That's a good point. Um, to clarify, because I didn't see any measures in place in the hallway, um, any tape, any rope, any decals on the floor. I, but you couldn't necessarily see that from that photo. But what it really looked like to me, they didn't stagger the schedule. There were no measures in place to keep um all of the children from entering, and I don't know if they were in a traditional setting or if they were hybrid, but either way, with 2,000 children, I just didn't see any measures in place. So I figure that the district stance is we're going on back to school. We're, we're not going to worry about this. We'll, we can encourage you to wear a mask. We're not going to force you. It is what it is. And some kids are going to get sick and some parents are going to get sick and teachers are going to get sick. But you know what? We're going back to school. So with that type of attitude about it, that is why you were so defensive when the truth hit the nation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, 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 we have a modified schedule. We're on a hybrid block. We've put decals on the floor. We've marked off bathroom stalls. So only two of the four can be used at a time. I mean, so many different things that we've done to try to put measures in place for children. And then if I have children to violate it, then that would be my response when it hits the media. Oh, no, wait, th- these children deliberately, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. something to, to, to discredit um, the situation. But they, they got to take ownership of it. And you don't punish a child for telling the truth. Uh, that's that, And that was my thought. I was frustrated. I actually posted this um, in a Slack channel that I'm in. And I was kind of, there's a lot of educators in there. And I was like, hey, what, what's y'all's thoughts on this? This, this as a, a First Amendment free speech type person, this bothers me that this child may get suspended for posting this picture. And then some people kind of threw out the idea of, and you may be familiar with this, it's the uh, Tinker versus Des Moines, which basically it gives students the right to free speech. But the, and the but is if something's very disruptive, I think, and, I, and I'm not an attorney, so please don't quote me on this, but if something's so, very disruptive. So th- can, that's correct, though, what you're getting ready to explain. That's like posting a fight live on Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. That's inappropriate. And so, and, and and people were like, maybe the school's trying to use that. It doesn't look like that was the case. And and really, I don't think you can argue that the bad publicity was disruptive. I mean, it may have been disruptive, no. but I don't think that's kind of the same thing. They didn't disrupt it at that moment. And it, and it looks like the school, you know, did suspend her, like you said, because of the violation of that social media policy. But then they have since um, allowed her to go back to school and erased the she suspension. She missed several days of instruction. She did. Because and, she shared the truth of what what was going on in that building. And, and I what love I really want to know is how many cases of COVID they have after this week. Well, <laughs> absolutely. And that broke this morning. Um, so this morning, wow. apparently nine cases of COVID have been reported at that school. Um, and this was in looks like Atlanta News Now. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it says that I think six of them uh, were students. And so far, three have tested positive that were um, staff members or teachers or, or what have you. And so and that's uncalled for. Exactly. Um, so I, I guess here we are and we're looking at it. And this this whole story has also raised other questions. Like you've got the superintendent saying, you know, wearing a mask is a personal choice and there's no 
this is his quote, there's no practical way to enforce a mandate to wear them. I don't necessarily agree with it. You make it a part of your dress code. Right. I mean, we watch school districts around the country enforce dress codes pretty darn effectively. (laughs) Like, let's put masks Mm -hmm. aside or anything. Uh, Yeah. Do you anticipate any trouble? I mean, you do have middle school students, the hardest to enforce in many ways. Listen, we will remind them. We will enforce it. We have um, posters on every single door. Don't even enter. Just stop where you are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, you know, I intend to have people on duty um, to assist visitors and those that are arriving for school because you can't even leave the checkpoint without having an appropriate temperature. I'm wondering where are any of those things even happening at that school? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. To me, just like socially speaking, um, sociology speaking, mask wearing is such a kind of like popcorn you start to see a few people wear it and then more people wear it and i feel like if a school starts off strong and they make it the norm to wear a mask i feel like all those kids who may have been doubters will fall in line well here's my question is the staff required yeah i don't know the answer to that because if the staff was required so you're being hypocritical now you are requiring the adults in the building to wear a mask for others' safety, but we know that the youth are carrying the virus as well. They may not get sick from it. They may not, you know, have as many um, incidents of needing to go to the hospital. They are carriers. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Um, so th- that story was interesting. I'm glad they, you know, erased her suspension at the end of the day. It looks like they yeah. did she kind of... She should be able to go back to school on Monday, I believe. Oh, and I also love that she quoted John Lewis saying, you know, the whole good trouble thing. I'm paraphrasing. But yes. that, I, I thought, what a, a an apropos Get time. Get in to, trouble. Get in some good trouble. That's and, what he says. Yep. And, and I really like that. Um, a sad story out of Mississippi, actually. And we have not actually started going back to school yet. Um, our governor has kind of put out this, I'm just going to call it, it, it was weird. It, it basically was like, we're going to delay middle school and high school where there's hot spots. And I think it was like seven counties where they he mandated the delay. Yeah. And that it doesn't impact us. Our children are going to school on Thursday. Right. <laughs> it, it, he, he's very much, um, and again, I may be getting myself in trouble, but he's very much straddling the fence. I wish he would have i'll just say it more of a backbone i wish he would you know he i think he knows what's right but he also knows what's politically popular and he can't seem he's trying to kind of you know split hairs there and it's leaving us with this very confusing and non-consistent policy and a messy message um but i'll be the one to say that so i really don't i don't i just wish he would kind of you know go with what his gut's telling him and if he thinks school needs to be delayed he just needs to delay it statewide but anyhow here we are So i'm gonna be the advocate here okay um i had someone to criticize a decision that i've made this week um and when i went back and reflected on it it's the best decision um in regards to preparation for teachers returning and um but what by the time i got home i felt some kind of way um None of us have us leaders. None of us have ever led in a pandemic. There's not one teacher living right now that has taught in school during a pandemic. So with that being said, sometimes I feel bad for our governor and our politicians because it's hard to try to please the masses when you're just trying to do what you think is right. But at but at also on the flip side of that coin, We truly should listen to our medical and scientific professionals 
who that is their niche, that is what they studied, and they are the, you know, the gurus of that information. We really should listen to that information before we make decisions. And so when we ignore them, when we push them to the side, when we don't take them into consideration, then we look crazy when we make decisions that aren't, you know, in the best interest of the entire um, population. And so I say that to say the thing that I've been concerned about goes back to earlier this summer when we piecemealed counties being required to wear masks and it took, you know, unbelievable um, numbers going on days after days for us to finally get a statewide mandate for wearing masks. But now we're piecemealing um, the setback of school to only certain counties. And we live right here near some counties that have extremely high numbers. Mm-hmm. One being where I serve that that county to the county where we live. And so are you saying, if I'm hearing you right, that you feel bad for the position the governor's in? I do. Yeah. I do. Because, I mean, let's just keep it real. We don't know what we're doing. We're doing absolutely the best that we can. But when you take away the data and the facts and you just go nilly-willy, I have a problem with that. So, and I guess there's a Shakespeare quote that comes to mind. Um, and it, it's, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And that, to me, has always meant that, you know, sometimes you you may not be this great leader, but sometimes you're put in a position where you have to react and how yes. you react is going to separate whether or not you are great or not. And and one national um, point that comes to mind when I hear that quote is I think of um, George W. Bush, whether you liked his politics or not, right after 9-11, he did rise to the occasion. Now, whether or not you like anything else that happened outside of there, I think most Americans would agree right after 9-11, he, he kind of rallied the country. Um, well, and- I think he caught where he made his mistakes in something else and understood, okay, I've got to handle this catastrophe differently. Right. And so, and he, and just like with COVID, he was yep. not expecting that to happen. He, it was not, it was still early in his presidency. So I feel like our governor, right. very much early in his governorship, is in a similar position right now. Yeah. And yeah. and so how will he react? He is, he has an opportunity to have greatness thrust upon him. Um, he's, but it's all depends on how he acts. And he, he just kind of needs to follow his gut and he needs to go with what he knows is right and put aside well, the politics. And how, I don't know about his gut because his gut's tied to Washington. Well, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> so, you so, gotta, you know. so anyhow, enough about our governor. I mean, we in this state, right as we're about to open, we had a reality check. Uh, I think it, it broke Friday. Friday, there was a teacher out of um, Lafayette County, Mississippi, but he's also uh, an assistant high school football coach. Um, yes, it's devastating. Yeah, Nakoma James, um, and he apparently is 42 years old, and he died of COVID-19. Um, and I'm told he was healthy, and I'm older than him. And that's what's so scary. And and I guess what what's scary to me is how will the country react as more of these stories develop, will we say, all right, this is ridiculous. We do not need to have our educators dying for this. Or will we grow numb to it? And that's this, the latter is what really scares me. I mean, where do you think we'll be a month from now? I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, but I have to tell you that we're not our numbers are not getting better. And I want people to understand that we hear, okay, well, for a few days, our number went, our numbers went down. But I also hear that there are many clinics who are without, who ran out of tests. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, if we ran out of tests, especially the rapid ones, then people who are waiting to be tested can't be tested. You know, you're always waiting on 
test results to come in. And then we went through that little phase of, oh, well, our numbers are dropping. Okay, well, they're right back up <laughs> mm-hmm. over the last few days. And you hear me laughing because I have taken this stance of I can let this tear me apart, make me depressed, make me negative and worry me to death to where I'm not sleeping. But I have to laugh sometimes because I'm a leader of people and I serve children in a school. And if I can't balance my emotions, then certainly it's going to bleed over to them. So I'm just truly laughing and thinking we're not going to be in a school in school anywhere in about a month. That's my prediction. I I just don't think as a society we should have the tolerance for letting educators die. I, I don't know. I mean, no, and, and if no, that, and not, and, and not infecting your community because see, you have to think about it. Children go home to grandparents, foster parents, aunties, uncles, households where multiple families are living together. That mm-hmm. is not fair. We're really putting them at risk. Yeah, we really are. It, and so how has that news kind of reverberated around your community out of, you know, you're hearing this teacher who who passed in Lafayette County and we don't know 100 percent that he got scary. it from a student. I mean, he could have picked it up in the community, possibly, but it, that's true. But let's also be clear. Mm-hmm. Football workouts has, has gone on the entire summer at that school and they noted that in the article. Yes. And so now they are making sure they're getting their teams tested and all that good stuff. But. It doesn't matter how you can contract it. It doesn't matter from whom or from what surface. We have to consider that that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the reason why they're constantly telling us to keep our hands sanitized. And at the end of the day, that is a precious teacher from a school community who was well-loved, mm-hmm. well-respected, good at his job, and he's gone. I know. And, and that's and that's what bothers me. He's gone and we're still opening schools, right? And so it's kind of like, so if that happens again and again and again, at what point do we say, all right, this is enough? And you can't really even put a number on it. That's a, that's a rhetorical question. But I just, right. I just hope our society doesn't grow numb to the fact of what's happening, that educators may actually start dying across the country, across the state. And I just hope we don't say, well, this is the risk we have to take. I feel like... Well, my question is, how many educators have already died? Yeah. Pre 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 opening of schools. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, that's a fair question. Um, so, you know, we we talked last week about um, getting the school designer on the show. Um, yeah. I actually did have an opportunity to catch up with him. Um, so, I want to dive into that. We I kind of picked his brain a little bit on like, do schools look different um, in the future if this was to continue as designing for COVID nineteen? And um, mm-hmm. it, it, he has an interesting perspective. So. Um, wow. Are you I'm looking uh, forward to hearing that? Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for today's bright idea? I surely am. Our guest in today's bright idea segment is a school designer that focuses on building schools tailored to the way children learn. Prakash Nair is the founding president and CEO of Education Design International, and he's the author of several books like Blueprint for Tomorrow, Redesigning Schools for Student-Centered Learning, and his latest book, Learning by Design, Live, Play, Engage, Create. Prakash, welcome to Class Dismissed. Uh, Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to dive into your books, Blueprint for Tomorrow and Learning by Design, in in a minute. But first, I have to pick your brain on how the COVID crisis has impacted your thinking when it comes to designing schools. Yes. uh, The the process of change in school design has actually been going on now for a number of years, but it has mostly been a sort of a fringe movement. And I think covid 19 is going to accelerate uh, that process. 
what does that look like? I guess in my mind, if I'm thinking of trying to design a school that is safer for the world that we're currently living in, I start thinking about bottlenecks and tight hallways. That might be an issue. I start thinking about ventilation systems. Is that stuff that's crossed your mind? Yeah, but it's it's interesting. It's kind of what everybody thinks, right? I mean, they think about schools and they think about how to make it safer. So essentially, you're taking a model of education that's been obsolete for probably over 100 years, <laughs> because even 100 years ago, people were saying that it's inhumane to trap a bunch of kids in a room and then keep them there so they can listen to an adult. I mean, children go to school to watch adults work. I mean, that's a good way of putting schools. Mm-hmm. So yes, when we talk about COVID, we are talking about how to make that basically dysfunctional model uh, a little uh, less dysfunctional, but in the process, it becomes more dysfunctional, right? I mean, if you have children who are in a classroom and now you have fewer of them and they are socially distanced, so they can't even literally touch each other, that's an even more dysfunctional um, version of what we already have. So I would say that we should put that aside and say, how can we use this opportunity to change the fundamental model of schooling, which has been broken now for a long, long, long time? So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying a lot of the things that might make a safer school is stuff we should have already been thinking about in terms of designing schools in the first place. Yes. uh, What I'm basically saying is that if we design schools the way they needed to be designed in the beginning, the chances are they would be, it would be easier to deal with the COVID crisis because you would have children with a little bit more elbow room um, and ability to move around. You would have a model called learning communities where students are not trapped in classrooms, but instead have a variety of different spaces. So the same number of students would now have uh, more room. But beyond that, learning communities also connect very uh, strongly with outdoors. Uh, That becomes a huge uh, additional uh, amount of space that you would have had. So that's how um, COVID would have been much less of an impact on a well-designed school is my point. It has a much greater impact on a factory school, which was basically a leftover from the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so yeah, you just said something that caught my attention. You said a factory school. So, so you're you're saying that schools are basically mirrored along the lines of a factory, right? Yeah, because if you think about if you think about the idea of uh, sorting kids by age, not based upon aptitude, interest, or passion, but rather simply by age, and then stick them in a room with an adult, uh, you can't personalize. Obviously, how does one teacher personalize learning for twenty five students? Now we know that children are not parts in a factory. Every child constructs knowledge based on his or her own uh, background. And so when we talk about personalization, that's just rhetoric. It's physically impossible to personalize learning. The second problem is that teachers can't work as a team, and teachers are one of the few professions that are always isolated from from their peers. So there's a bunch of reasons why the factory model school doesn't work because children are not like parts in a factory. You can't churn out... Uh, identical widgets, you know, and you don't want to. Why would you want all 25 students to turn turn out exactly the same? So why are you subjecting them to the exact same process? I want our listeners to hear some of your solutions to that in a second. But first, let's kind of fill them in on your background a little bit. You used to work for, is it New York City schools for a while? Yeah, I was the director of operations for the largest school construction program in the world. We were spending an average of a billion dollars every year during my my 10 years that I was in that position from 1989 to 1999. Yeah, that's billion with a B. With a B, right. 
Right. So that's incredible. And so I guess when you reflect on that, and you have since, I guess, gone off and started your own consulting company in terms of school design, I mean, what do you think about that time? Well, I think we made, uh, we did the same thing that many other schools and school districts are doing. I would say 95% of uh, public school districts, even to this day, are doing the same thing, which is we built schools that were obsolete on the day they opened. So the problem with schools uh, buildings is that unlike everything else, you're basically then uh, telling students uh, that for the next 50 years, they're going to be studying in dysfunctional spaces. That was, again, outdated on the day the school opened. So, I mean, of course, I didn't realize that when we were building those schools. But when I realized it, that was when I uh, I decided that I have to move on and uh, leave that job behind. Right. So you started your own company and you since have been working, I guess, with districts, not just all over the United States, but all over the world, right? Yeah. So obviously, when I started, I wasn't sure that there would even be a market for what I was uh, basically selling, if you want to call it that. It was mostly ideas to say we can do better, that school buildings don't need to reflect uh, uh, our looking in the rearview mirror, but we should be looking forward. I mean, schools, if anything, have to be the most futuristic things, right, because we're preparing children for an unknown future. So I was thinking what would happen if you design school buildings based on the actual research about how children learn. And I thought there would be a market for it. And sure enough, there was. So over the last 20 years, um, I've now, the companies that I've started have worked, uh, have done work in, in 52 countries around the world. That's that's incredible. Kudos to you and all that work. Now, Blueprint for Tomorrow, I guess, is is not just saying, you know, we need to build new schools to tailor how the way children's learn, but it's also basically saying, how do we renovate the existing buildings we have, right? That's right. Because if you think in terms of just building new buildings, like 99.9% of the children in the school already have a place to go to. So if we're talking about new schools, it's for the children who currently don't have a place in school, which is basically new students maybe coming in in areas that are being, uh, where enrollment is increasing. So if I were to come up with solutions that applied only to a brand new school, that would basically eliminate 99% of all, all <laughs> children and $2 trillion worth of investment that we've made in our school buildings. So I have been working on solutions to take existing schools and convert them at uh, very reasonable prices, uh, very often with work that you can do over a summer to make them truly uh, modern. I don't want to say 21st century because it's that's, you know, uh, <laughs> it's such a cliche because we're well into the 21st century. I mean, it's an absurd to say that we should. But the reality is that these schools are stuck actually in the 20th and one might be once the 19th century. Yeah. Okay, so here's the, the billion-dollar question is, is what does that look like? What do you go in and, and tell people to change in an existing school building? Yeah, well, fundamentally, we have a model that we call cells and bells, which is that kids start their day in a in a cell, the bell goes off, and then they move to another identical cell. And my uh, point is that there's only a limited number of things that you can physically do when you're trapped in a classroom. Now, if you think about wanting children to learn anything or adults to learn anything, if you want to be a football player, you have to go play football. If you want to be a pianist, you have to play uh, the piano. If you want to be a chef, you have to be in the kitchen. Schools are uh, um, never doing that. Schools are all about theory and giving, um, filling information in kids' heads so they can spit it out on an exam. They almost never get to try it out in a real-world scenario. So my point is that the spaces should allow for a multiple 
ways of learning. So we call them uh, modalities of learning. So a classroom typically would be good for two or three modalities of learning, whereas I want them to be uh, living in spaces that allow up to 19 or 20 modalities of learning. So that means the lessons can be much richer and the spaces are there to accommodate a much uh, richer lesson plan so that students are actually doing, applying what they're learning as opposed to just learning it so they can spit it out on an exam. Can you get um, even more specific? I mean, when you say a, a richer space, I mean, what does that look like? What do you change? It's it's basically very simple. Like as human beings, there are I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down to four modalities instead of the 20, right? Let's, we, the four would be, uh, we call it campfire. So learning happens in four ways. Campfire is when you hear a professional talking to you and you get inspired, say you listen to a TED talk or something, and then you say, wow, that's great. So you've learned something, right? The next form is called a watering hole. Watering hole is when you take that information that you got to the campfire and you share it with a colleague. You talk it up. And when you discuss it with somebody else, your peer, Maybe new new insights come into play that you never uh, would have imagined had you just listened to that uh, lecture or a podcast. And the third way of uh, learning would be cave, which is that you have to internalize. I mean, there's so much stuff that's hitting you from all corners of the world that you really need to get away from everything and you need to synthesize what you're learning. You need to internalize it and you need to see how it makes meaning in your own personal life. And finally, you got to try it out. So that's life, right? So it's campfire, cave, uh, watering hole, and life. So the spaces have to be designed so that all four modalities of learning are actually happening. So if I were a fly on the wall looking at a well-designed school building, I would see all four of these modalities happening, preferably the campfire in very, very, very small quantities because listening to somebody tell you something is actually the least effective way for you to learn. I mean, you might imagine that you're learning something. It's kind of like the difference between actually physically playing a piano versus versus going and listening to a concert pianist. You may come away inspired by the concert pianist, but you haven't actually learned anything until you actually put your hand on that piano. So what does a, a cave space look like, for example, in a school building? Uh, it could be a windowsill. It could, in, when you're a very small child, it could be a space under, um, a, you know, a loft, a reading loft. Um, there are dozens of ways in which we can create safe uh, cave spaces where children can basically get away, but are still being visually supervised by adults. The idea is to be by yourself in your own head. That's what a cave space is all about. Right. And so where where have you seen these ideas? Like, where have you been able to actually implement these ideas? Is there a school that you can kind of point to, preferably in the United States, where you say, man, that that's what we were going for? Yeah, we've, we've done a number of them, obviously, all around the world. But in the U.S., uh, one of the early ones we did was the P.K. Young um, uh, Research, uh, Developmental Research School that's in uh, Gainesville. It's it's part of the University of Florida. And actually, the school was set up so that it could become a, a sort of a teaching school for others to follow. So there, we implemented all of these things that I'm talking to you about, where they basically even broken down the idea of grades. I mean, they are two grades always working together. Uh, Teachers are always working in a team. They don't have the traditional classrooms that we would recognize as a classroom. They have a variety of spaces and they're all based on the learning community model and teachers uh, have their own collaborative office where they work out of. Let's talk about your your book, Learning by Design, which is more recently released. And and that is um, all about building a space that's proper for student learning? Yeah, learning by design has a couple of um, 
ideas behind it. First, it was written with my uh, co-authors, uh, Roni Zimmer Doctori, who is, uh, is my uh, architect colleague, uh, and Dr. Richard Elmore, who is the professor emeritus at Harvard. And the idea is that the word uh, design, by design, uh, implies two things. One is by intent. Uh, design is our intent. And design is also what architects do uh, in the designing of spaces. But the subtitle here is Live, Play, Engage, and Create. So by that, what I mean is that uh, when you live, when you play, when you engage in things that are exciting for you, and when you're creating things that are original, you're also learning. So the problem with most schools, most classroom-based schools, is that they don't allow you to really live, play, engage, or create. Therefore, they are shortchanging the learning process because real learning happens as a byproduct. So when you try to hammer learning as a pure uh, thing, it's actually counterproductive and counterintuitive because that's not how researchers and neurologists say our brain works. We have to actually engage in something, create something, play or be living, and then learning just happens sort of naturally. So our reason for writing the book was to say that if you want to design a school, and I'm saying design including the curriculum and all of the other pieces, you have to design it so that students are having amazing experiences in school. And in those experiences, learning is uh, already embedded. And so, of course, spaces have to reflect uh, these uh, amazing experiences that we want to give our children. Yeah, and the cover on on Learning by Design is actually pretty stunning. Is that an actual classroom that that you all have designed? I mean, it, it looks like it's just like this great, breakdown of a, of a workspace yeah this is actually believe it or not the classroom type space is behind and as you can see there's some wooden doors which are uh, glass doors that are actually completely open and there's a teacher who might normally have been teaching in that classroom who is now serving more as a guide and he happens to be sitting with a bunch of kids who might have need his advice but at the same time other students are doing their own thing so this is actually a breakout space that is immediately outside what we call the learning studio. And the learning studio is just a, a much more sophisticated version of a classroom because it can do a lot more than you can do in a classroom. And, and we, that, in other words, we are saying, we're not saying direct instruction is bad. We are not saying you want to go back to the 1970s with the open classrooms where there were no, no rooms. We're saying there need to be rooms for direct instruction, but they need to be that needs to be done in a very uh, careful way so that you're only giving enough instruction uh, uh, so that students can go off and discover things on their own and not sort of spoon feed them the information they need. You mentioned the school in Gainesville and having um, put that one together and being proud of that. I mean, have you had a chance to, to go back? I mean, do you actually like see the school in action since y'all have designed it? Yeah. By the way, the cover of uh, Blueprint for Tomorrow is that school in Gainesville. Okay. And there was a course that um, I did with Professor Richard Elmore called Leaders of Learning. It's a it's an edX course in which uh, the teachers at that school have been interviewed as well. Uh, so, yes, I've gone back a number of times and uh, the, the format for the school has um, evolved over time. But the fundamental model, which is that learning cannot be mass produced, that it has to be a personalized model, uh, has not changed. And so you will still see that very much in evidence. I know you're talking a lot about, you know, renovating existing buildings. And, and as you said, that's 99% of, of what's out there. But I've, I've seen recently, too, I mean, in 
this COVID crisis is probably going to cause us to be even more so. I've seen a lot of real estate go vacant. And for example, I think it was in Alabama, I saw a, um, a shopping mall that they actually converted into a high school because no one wanted the space. And it just made sense to use an existing space like that. Is that anything that's kind of crossed your desk? Oh, absolutely. There was a community we worked with in Virginia that uh, essentially wanted to build a high school. But in conversations with the community, we realized that actually the better alternative may be to create a series of small hubs where students are getting some specialized uh, experience. You know, it could be a Starbucks kind of a, a hub. It might be robotics. It might be forensics. It might be medical technology, you know, and on and on. And so you don't need to have a full-fledged high school because the community already had three high schools. So if you want to uh, go and play football or swim, you can go to one of the high schools. But the rest of the time, you can be in one of these hubs. So what we're saying is that the whole concept of how we think about schools uh, should change. And you're 100% right that any place it can potentially be a, a school. Uh, and I want people not to use the word school and immediately get to the mental model of what a school looks like. We're talking about places for learning. So, yes, you can do it in a, a shopping mall. You can do it in a strip-centered mall, a movie theater. I mean, you name it. There's no building type out there that won't be in some way useful and can be repurposed, if you will, for for learning. And, and with your book, Learning by Design, I mean, is your target there educators or is it more the decision makers and the people that are trying to, to redo the schools? Well, basically, it's everybody. And the reason is that what we are saying is is simple, right? I mean, if you were stuck with a 1982 Apple IIe, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation, right? And so the, the point is that the hardware matters in order to run the software that we want. And we are now dealing with a 100-year-old uh, hardware. So my point is that when we think about architecture, you can't put it in the realm of architects and say, okay, you guys, that's your that's your area. No, basically the form and function are completely integrated in the way in an iPad is a different form factor that allows you to do things you can't do on your iPhone or your MacBook, right? So I want everybody to understand that you can't leave this uh, in somebody else's hands. Everybody who is a part of education needs to educate themselves about the profound impact the hardware has on everything that they want to do as educators. So this is um, a message, and the book has been written in such a way that everybody, even a layperson, a parent, a uh, superintendent, a teacher, everybody can benefit and basically take the learning environment and make that part of their um, arsenal, their repertoire of things that they need to know in order to be a good teacher, a good superintendent, a good principal, a good parent. And even this applies even in your own home, how you how you set up your home so kids can learn better. You know, uh, I've got to ask you, since you you guys are an international company, and I think you mentioned you've been in, done work in 52 different countries. Right. Um, so is there a country that is, you know, across the board uh, adopting this line of thinking and doing it right everywhere? Or is it just a matter of pockets of people trying to slowly convert to this, um, you know, learning by design? It's interesting because a country like Finland, for example, has succeeded because they marginalized the school and made it a smaller part of the equation. So it's not because Finland schools look that much better or physically better, but because the school is a smaller part of the overall learning equation, they are successful because they know that learning doesn't begin and end with the physical school. It's, it's a community effort. 
so yeah, places like Australia, New Zealand, um, as I said, parts of Scandinavia, Denmark, uh, they have tried to do a lot of this. And in the United States, we have dozens of great examples as well. But you're 100% right that it's not really immersed in, at a national level to the extent that I would like to see it. Now, because we have this model that is so pervasive. I mean, I've been in schools and I wouldn't even know which country I'm in because they look exactly identical, hmm. you know. So you'd have to look at the posters on the wall to know that, you know, you're maybe in Abu Dhabi as opposed to, you know, Switzerland, you know. That's how uh, uniform schools are across the world. So this is a very hard um, nut to crack. I mean, when a, when a billion more kids are in schools that look the same, it, it, it there's a comfort that this is what it should be, you know. And, and uh, so we're trying to break that, let people know, no, just because more people are doing it doesn't make it right. It's a broken model. Well, uh, it's very fascinating. And, and uh, good luck to you in, in cracking that nut, because I, I think this is so important. And I mean, just, you know, looking at your books and the work that you've done, it seems like, um, you know, we should be seeing results uh, with this new type of learning. So, Prakash, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it and appreciate all the great work you're doing. Hey, before you run, are you ready for our uh, pop quiz? Sure, absolutely. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Art. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Psychology. What does every child deserve? To be loved. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Giving up control. What's the best gift to give an educator? Freedom. Which teacher changed your life? I would say, yes, uh, when I said teacher, um, yes, uh, Professor Richard Elmore, uh, even though he, he wasn't teaching me in school, but he continues to teach me to this day. So. And, and how, did, how did that change your life? He changed uh, the way I think about education and the way uh, I think about the world, about people. And, and I'm curious for this last question, since you are a designer, pen or pencil? Pencil. All right. Again, Prakash, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And uh, the new book is Learning by Design, if you want to check it out. Uh, where's the best place to find that? Uh, it's available everywhere on Amazon. Um, and it's available as a Kindle book. It's also available around the world because Amazon is uh, printing it in many different parts of the world. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Class Dismissed. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Bye-bye. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.